you want to read along, be reading from Exodus 3, starting verse 1 through 8. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, which was his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see what this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And when the Lord saw that, he turned aside to look. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmakers. For I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians. And to bring, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land. To a land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Pezzarites, and the Hivites, and also the Jebusites. This was a huge moment in the nation of Israel's history. This moment in which God called to Moses from out of a burning bush would be a key turning point in their story. Because as God called to Moses, he would there commission him to be the one to lead Israel out of Egyptian slavery to a life of freedom in the promised land. So much of the rest of the story of the Bible traces back to this historical event. Yet, Jesus, when he walked the earth 1,400 years later, Jesus, as one who truly knew the scriptures, and the power of God, he saw what happened there between God and Moses at that bush as being more than just a historical event. Appreciate Jesus could see it differently because he was with God. He'd been with God from the beginning. So when he looked back at that historical event in the life of the people of Israel, he recognized a detail about that you or I might pretty easily overlook. When God introduced himself to Moses, he introduced himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now that might not seem like much of a big deal to us, but appreciate that by then, by the time God spoke to Moses, those three guys were dead. They had been dead for centuries. And just to put that in context, how many of us even know the names of our first ancestors to set foot on this land? 
How many of us know their names from just a few hundred years ago? Much less their life stories. So often, death represents the end of the story. We might still talk about them if they were famous, if we're related to somebody who became president, or if they went on to do something exceptionally epic. But what exactly did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob do? Abraham left his home to live in a tent. He had a couple kids. He was really, really old when he had those kids. But that was it. But then there's Isaac, who also lived in a tent, got married, had a couple kids. But then Jacob also lived in a tent. He had a couple of wives. He had lots of kids. But the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not exactly the epic of Gilgamesh here. So to the world, those were guys who didn't matter. They lived their lives, and then they died. And for most of the world, after death, there was either nothing, or there was something, but it was a sort of disembodied existence where you go to the underworld and you're described as a shade that's very disconnected from life as we know it now. But for Jews, for the descendants of Abraham, not all of them, but many of them, they uniquely believed something different than the rest of the world. They uniquely believed that death was not the end. So God could be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because the promises that he had made to make them a great nation that would bless the whole world, even though they died, those promises still counted. Their bodies may be in a tomb decaying, but their stories were not yet over. Because as Jesus observed to some of the religious elite in his day, 1,400 years after God spoke to Moses, speaking to the Sadducees, he said, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. There was still more to come all of those centuries later because of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was still that more God was going to do for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is the hope of the resurrection. It's the hope that death isn't the end. That it isn't you draw your last breath and then all that's before you is a void, darkness, nothingness. But it's also that it isn't just an afterlife. That you die and then begin some ethereal existence where you float off somewhere else, completely disconnected from life here. As theologian N.T. Wright puts it, the hope of the resurrection is the hope of life after life, after death. It's that our existence continues, yes, and that God will raise us with transformed, incorruptible bodies 
that are able to share in his life forever. Now, to the rest of the world, that sounds absurd. The Apostle Paul was preaching in the great city of Athens one time. And whenever he would talk about the fact that they had it wrong with all these idols and there was really just one God, they listened respectfully. When he said that that one God was fundamentally different in his nature than the idols they worshipped, they hung in there. Even when he said that that one God expects all people to repent, they stayed with him. But when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, Acts 17 and verse 32 tells us, some mocked. That was the breaking point for them. The idea that dead people will rise again, that was just a bridge too far for those intellectuals to follow. But that belief is key. God is the God of the living. And as Jesus clearly saw, that hope of the resurrection was a key part of the story of the whole Bible. Because centuries after Moses, after God had sent plagues on Egypt and parted the Red Sea to secure their freedom, after he gave the people of Israel his law on that same mountain that he had called to Moses from, after he had led the people of Israel through the wilderness, after Moses himself, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before him, had died. And Israel settled that land that God had promised them. Centuries after all of that, the people of Israel were prospering under their greatest king, David. And the reason that David was so great was because he loved God with all his heart. And David, he had the hope of the resurrection. Just listen to what he wrote in Psalm 16, beginning with verse 7, where he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David, himself not just a songwriter, but a prophet, God's Holy Spirit speaking through him, knew that the choice he was making, the choice he was leading God's people to make, to serve God with their all, it mattered. Because whenever we seek God's presence in our lives now, he gives us gladness, he gives us reason to rejoice, but also he gives us the hope that our story doesn't end with a lifeless body decomposing in a tomb somewhere. That even after we die, there is still hope for something more. That there's still a path of life before us. That there's still fullness of joy before us. Though sometimes in our lives, that can be very hard to see. Because over centuries in the promised land, Israel didn't always choose to seek God. They didn't always choose to stay in his presence. And eventually that meant punishment. That meant that they got carried away as slaves into exile from that land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, they were carried away as slaves into exile if they hadn't been killed. As many, many of the people of Israel were killed. Yet even in such a dark moment in the biblical story, there was still hope. The prophet Ezekiel, 
was one of those exiles. And some 585 years before the birth of Jesus, he had hope of the resurrection. In Ezekiel 37, verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, These bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. O my people, I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. See here that after all of the death and destruction caused by Israel's unfaithfulness, God, the God of the living, still spoke hope. His word had the power to bring new life. His breath, which in Hebrew is the same word as what we translate as spirit, could make the driest of bones long since past hope rattle and come together and take on flesh and live. This was God's hope for Israel. That they'd be raised from their graves, that they'd live by His Spirit, that they truly know God. And this gave them hope as a nation in exile. Because it was a powerful metaphor. That their exile wouldn't last forever. That at some point in the future, exile would end and they would be restored. But that prophecy also gave a strong basis for the people of God to have a real hope 
that one day they would experience a literal, bodily resurrection. And that's a hope that no other people on this earth have. And when you are somebody who uniquely has a hope like that, it makes you able to do some pretty incredible things. It makes you able to endure some very awful things. Daniel was another one of those prophets in the time of exile. And God told him in astonishing accuracy things that would happen in the not-too-distant future for the world. And while foreign kings would attack, doing abominable things to God's people, while the wise those who truly knew God and stood firm and would take action even in the face of those challenges would stumble by sword and flame. They'd die. There would still be hope. And in the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 12, God said that after a time of trouble, such as had never been since there was a nation till that time, he would deliver and listen to how he would do that in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, not every Jew in Jesus' day held prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel, psalms like those David wrote as being authoritative scripture on the same ground as the law of Moses. But those who did, Jews like Jesus, saw one clear, powerful thing throughout the Bible that God is the God of the living. And that death itself would not be able to stop his promises. That death is not where God's people's stories end. Because there would be resurrection. Not just our souls floating off to be somewhere else. The dead would rise bodily. And God's people. Those who loved his presence now would be transformed to share in his glory and live by his spirit in his presence forever. Which is interesting. Maybe you haven't thought of it that way before. Maybe you don't often hear those scriptures and these ideas put together quite that way despite the fact that that's how Jesus' apostles exclusively preached about it all throughout the book of Acts and the letters, but I digress. But what does that mean for now? Is the point that, you know, you really shouldn't say that your deceased loved one went to heaven. It would be more accurate to say that they went to paradise or Abraham's bosom, and then when Jesus comes, they're going to rise again. Okay, great. Glad we cleared that up. We've all got a clear understanding of it now. Okay. But what good does that do you if this whole idea of death seems really far off? You're young, you're healthy, or better yet, you're busy. 
You've got enough stuff to deal with with this life to even think about the afterlife. So what's the big deal? Or what's the big deal if maybe you're at a point in life where death is a little too close? Where you've lost someone that you couldn't have imagined living without. Where you're facing your own mortality. It's good to know death isn't the end. Someday there'll be resurrection. But what about the pain that we feel right now? Let's ask Jesus. In John chapter 11, beginning with verse 17, we see how Jesus answers these questions in light of the death of his beloved friend Lazarus. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Like a lot of faithful Jews in her day, Martha had hope of the resurrection. She had hope that a day would come when God would raise the dead in new eternal bodies for blessed eternal life with him. She really believed that, but her brother was dead now. She really wanted to understand why? Or if not that, to at least feel seen, feel heard. She wanted to unburden. She was in pain and she needed comfort. She needed hope. And that, my friends, is why it matters that God is God of the living. That's why it matters that Jesus is His Word incarnate. At the beginning of this same Gospel account, it declares to us that Jesus is the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that is why Jesus could explain the resurrection in a way that Jewish elites like the Sadducees couldn't. Because despite all of their position and influence over their people, they didn't know the scriptures. 
believers. They didn't know the power of God, not like Jesus did. But that's also why Jesus could explain all of this in a way that even the Pharisees couldn't. Because those religious teachers did at least believe in the resurrection. But when they taught about it, they only ever interpreted. They were people that were really good at preaching, but they were lousy when it came to practice. But Jesus, Jesus had authority. Jesus didn't just repeat what the Bible said. Jesus fulfilled what the Bible said. So Jesus didn't just talk about resurrection as a topic. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that means something right now. It meant something in that moment for Lazarus and his family. It meant that even if he had been in the tomb for four days, even if his body had begun to decay, that Jesus had the power to raise him. But it didn't just mean he had the power to do that physical resurrection as one of his many miracles while he was on earth. Because Jesus had the power to do that, it says something else. It makes it clear for all of us bearing witness to this who Jesus is. Is And if we see and believe who Jesus is, then that gives weight to what Jesus says. It gives weight to what Jesus says, but not just for after we die. It gives weight to what Jesus says, not just about the topic of death. It gives weight to what Jesus says about our lives. Because God is the God of the living. And Jesus didn't come to just explain some things to make sure we're okay later. Jesus came to change things in our lives right now. And that was always God's plan. In fact, go back to that dry bones prophecy from Ezekiel chapter 37 and look at how this prophecy ends. In Ezekiel 37... And verse 21, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers live. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is that king. Jesus is that king that cleanses us. Jesus is that king that allows all of us to be God's people. Because when you look at Jesus' life, you see someone who is descended from that line of David. So you can know that he is that one shepherd, that he is our prince forever. He is the one and only one who can bring us peace He is the one and only one who can put us in God's presence. And that changes things. That reality changes things now. Because if that's true, then we can't have the same priorities we had before. We can't have the same priorities that look indistinguishable from everybody else in this world. Because we recognize that what we do now matters. Because if you are sitting here professing to be a Christian, recognize you are in God's presence already. If you gave your loyalty to King Jesus, you put your faith in Jesus as the Christ. If you repented and were baptized in his name, crucifying that person you used to be and burying them in the water to rise to live as a new creature, you receive the gift of God's Holy Spirit. Now we're to live by him. We're to live by that spirit. And as we do, he's going to produce joy and peace. He's going to give us comfort and strength. He's going to start changing us now into people who will be able to live with God forever. He's going to start a process in us now that Jesus himself will finish when he comes. And if we really believe that, then that should give us boldness. If we believe that God is the God of the living, if we have the hope of the resurrection, then we can be different. If we believe that we can make sacrifices, if we believe that we can endure pain, we can even lay down our lives for Jesus because this isn't it. We have hope. Something else awaits us and not some wispy existence elsewhere. Real, durable life. All the best parts of life in the Spirit now, but made complete, made perfect, made incorruptible by Jesus the Christ Himself. If we belong to Jesus, we are God's people now. We are the heirs of the promises, church, that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. If we are following Jesus every day of our lives, we are fulfilling those purposes that God has had all along for Israel. Because of Jesus, by his death, his burial, and his 
especially by his resurrection, we now today have the hope that the whole Bible was pointing to. Now it's just up to us to live it. Because God, he's the God of the living. If you need to talk with somebody about how to live with them, don't leave here without doing that. Let's stand and sing.